Welcome to those of you who are gathered with us to worship our great God this morning. Welcome to those of you who may be following along from home. God bless you where you are. I invite you to turn to God's Word, uh, specifically to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Uh, it's one of those beautiful high points in Scripture, Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. That's our text this morning. John 4, verse 1. Let's hear God's word together. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, so noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say, that in Jerusalem, uh, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Amen. May God bless the reading of His word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, grant us to know increasingly uh, the spiritual satisfaction that comes from close fellowship and a close relationship with you. Lord, our, our, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their fulfillment in you, and we pray that we would experience that more and more. We pray, Lord, that we would value you and treasure you above absolutely everything in our lives. 
And we pray that your supremacy in our affections would shape everything else and cause us to live a life of obedience and joyful service to you and others. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes this morning to see the glory and beauty of your son Jesus and to respond with faith and obedience. Amen. Uh, there, is a, there is a spiritual thirst in every human soul that only God can satisfy. Man was made for God, and he can't find fulfillment at the deepest level of his being apart from God. Uh, he is, if you like, the stream out of which we were always meant to drink to quench our soul's thirst. And if we are cut off from that stream... Uh, we seek to quench the deepest longings of our hearts by drinking dirty water from dirty puddles. In other words, when we are not fulfilled in God, we seek fulfillment in other things, in not God, in God's substitutes. Uh, we seek to satisfy our hearts with stimulating work, romantic relationships, uh, friendships, uh, great vacations, uh, pleasures of the table, eating and drinking. There are all of these substitutes that we have for God uh, that we use to try to quench our soul's desire for God, but they leave us wanting more. They leave us spiritually thirsty at the end of the day. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 2, verse 13, describes this phenomenon. God is speaking to his people, and he says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's a picture of our condition outside of God. We were meant to drink deeply from the life-giving streams that flow from God and to find spiritual satisfaction in Him. But having turned from God, we seek to satisfy our soul's thirst by drinking from dirty puddles, from cisterns that hold no water, and they don't ultimately satisfy Every human soul, apart from Jesus, apart from the Holy Spirit, is profoundly thirsty, Jesus tells us. And the great question is, how do we quench that thirst? How do we go back to these streams of living waters and find satisfaction in God? In this passage, and in this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, he tells us. He tells us how we can find uh, soul-satisfying water in God. And this morning, we will note especially three things as we look at this passage. First, notice who Jesus speaks to. Second, notice what Jesus gives. And third, notice how we should worship. Who Jesus speaks to, what Jesus gives, and how we should worship. Uh, we are told that Jesus' ministry is beginning to surpass that of John the Baptist. We saw in chapter 1 how John the Baptist was already uh, gaining some attention from the religious leaders of the Jews, and they were in investigating what he was doing and interrogating him. And it comes to Jesus' attention that these, some of these leaders recognize that now he and his disciples have an even more prominent ministry. So when Jesus realizes this, he says, it's time to leave Judea. Uh, it's time to head north back to Galilee. And uh, that trip from Judea to Galilee would have meant that he and his disciples traveled through Samaria. So they are journeying north, and they come to Samaria, to the town called Sychar, and then a field near that town where there's a well, a well that had been there for generations, for centuries, a well that had been established by the patriarch Jacob, and he had given it to his son Joseph. And while Jesus' disciples go into uh, to town to get some food, 
he's resting by the well, tired from the journey and probably ground down by that hot midday sun. There's something attractive about this picture of Jesus. Uh, We recognize, of course, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that He's divine, but He's also a human being. And He experiences all the troubles that we experience as human beings, including these petty annoyances, the weariness of life. He's got to sit by this well uh, to refresh Himself. So He's sitting there resting when there appears a solitary woman of Samaria. She's come to the well to get some water. And Jesus, contrary to the social conventions of the day, says to her, can can you get some water for me as well? I'd like a drink also. And she is surprised by this. How is it that you, a Jew, a man, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And there's a parenthetical comment that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. Uh, The relationships between these two groups was uh, often very bitter. What Jesus does is he violates social norms to engage this woman in conversation. Uh, And it's surprising that he does so for three reasons. First of all, it's surprising because it's a a Samaritan. Uh, The Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews as half-breeds with a false uh, system of worship and religion. About 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene and before our uh, situation here, the Assyrian Empire had destroyed the northern kingdom and had taken away the bulk of the Israelites. But they left a few Israelites behind, and these Israelites intermarried with some of the foreigners that were brought in, and so they were viewed as half-breeds. They weren't full Jews. In addition, they had a flawed system of worship, a flawed religion. They maintained that only the first five books of the Old Testament were authoritative, and they had a rival worship uh, sanctuary, uh, a rival temple, on Mount Gerizim, which was established about 400 A.D. Now, many Jews in Jesus' day thought you would be corrupted by simply eating uh, with the Samaritan, by simply going into their home and eating, using their vessels. So it's shocking that Jesus is saying to the Samaritan, let me drink water from your cup. Jesus is stepping over this cultural and religious boundary to engage this woman in conversation. Second, it's surprising that Jesus speaks to her because he's a Jewish man and she's a Samaritan woman. Uh, Generally speaking, Jewish men didn't speak to women in public. That was certainly the case if you were a single Jewish man, you didn't speak to women in public, and especially Samaritan women. Another violation of the social norms. And finally, it's somewhat surprising because this woman is something of a notorious sinner. She has a very morally messy past, and Jesus is well aware of that, as we'll see later. Uh, She has had a string of husbands, and the man she was living with was actually not her husband. Uh, Sometimes we might have this picture of Jesus that that's exactly the kind of person he'd stay away from. He's holy and pure. Uh, Why would he talk to a person like this? The fact is, John is showing us this is exactly the sort of person Jesus wants to talk to. This is exactly the kind of person Jesus wants to engage in conversation. Notice uh, there's a certain irony here. Uh, Generally speaking... When, when uh, women in, the, in this part of the world went to draw water from the well, they went as a group. And they would do so either in the morning or evening uh, because, you know, the sun wasn't as hot then and they enjoyed their company. There's also safety in numbers. Notice the fact that this woman goes alone to draw water in the middle of the day when the sun is hottest. What that shows is that she's something of a moral outcast, a pariah in her town. 
There are other women who, women who want to go with her. She goes alone in the heat of the day, and that communicates something probably about her status in her town. She's an outcast. And yet, while this woman may be too defiled for the other women, she's not too defiled for Jesus. That's exactly the kind of person that he wants to talk to and engage in conversation. This moment in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ well illustrates something that he says in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is saying, I came into the world for people who have made all the wrong choices, for people with pasts, for people with morally messy lives. Uh, Jesus is saying, there is no one who has sunk so low that I don't want to have a relationship with them, that I don't want to draw them to myself and to God. Think about what that says about Jesus. Jesus wants to scrape the bottom of the barrel and accept everyone who will come to him. If you're here this morning and you think, man, I've, I've made some pretty terrible decisions in my life. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt. I just don't know that I could ever come to Jesus or be put right with God. What this text is saying to you is like, you're exactly the kind of person Jesus wants. And he extends his hand out in friendship to you and invites you to trust in him as your savior to make you clean and to heal you of that defilement and present you spotless and holy to God. Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us, like this Samaritan woman. Uh, but we should clarify as well that it's not just like the conspicuously immoral people of the world that need Jesus. Even the respectable sorts need Jesus. We can see this partly in John's gospel by the way he puts Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3 next to this conversation with the uh, Samaritan woman in chapter 4. These are two very different individuals. Uh, Nicodemus is a respected theologian with a lot of power uh, among the Jews. Uh, and he approaches Jesus, of course, in the previous chapter, as we saw, and so does the Samaritan woman. The New Testament scholar D.A. Carson summarizes the differences between these two characters this way. Speaking of Nicodemus, uh, Carson writes, he was learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. She was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable only of folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, and a moral outcast. And here's the point, they both needed Jesus. Uh, those who, by the world standards, have it together, live a respectable life, they've made the right, maybe the right choices and are, have a certain level of social standing, those people need Jesus just as much as the morally messy individuals. Uh, but if you're here this morning and you're a bit of a Nic Nicodemus rather than Samaritan woman, and by God's grace you've made some wise choices in life and you've flourished and you have a level of social standing and respectability, uh, you need to understand something important. Those advantages that you have can become spiritual liabilities. Those things that in many ways are good things, making wise choices, uh, living uh, at one level a moral life, those things are good things in themselves, but they can blind you to your need for a savior. And what we need to learn from John's gospel is it doesn't matter where you are in life. You could be where the Samaritan woman is or where Nicodemus is or anywhere in between. Regardless of where you are, you are desperately in need of God's grace and forgiveness. Don't let whatever outward advantages you might have blind you to the true condition of your soul, which is that you need a savior. 
So remarkably, Jesus engages this woman in conversation by asking her for a drink. And then in the uh, second part of this paragraph, we see what the gift that Jesus has to give. So she's shocked. Why are you speaking to me? But Jesus doesn't respond directly to her astonishment. He turns the tables on her and says, look, if you knew the gift that God has to give, and if you knew the identity of the one speaking to you, I wouldn't be the one asking you for water. You would be asking me for living water, or, or what that means at a literal level is running water. If you knew who's speaking to you, you'd be asking me for running water. Now, at this stage of the conversation, Jesus is speaking figuratively or metaphorically, but she takes him to, to be speaking literally of running water. So she says to him, how is it you're going to get this water? Like you don't have anything to draw water from the well. The well is deep. Is there some other source of running water that you have that we don't have? Are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well? And of course, by implication, Jesus is saying precisely that. Yeah, I'm greater than Jacob because the water I give is better than the water you get in this well. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give is so good that you drink of that and there's no more thirst. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That, that water will not only satisfy the thirst forever, but it will itself become a water-generating source, a spring inside the soul that leads ultimately to eternal life. Now, the woman still thinks that Jesus is speaking on a literal level, and there's some humor and some irony here. Uh, the, the fact that he's talking about eternal life should have tipped her off that maybe there's something figurative happening. But she says, I would love that water because if you gave me this water that completely quenched my thirst, I'd never have to come back to the well. I would just be satisfied and I wouldn't have this chore every day or every other day. What I love about the woman at this stage is she's so human, right? Jesus wants to speak to us about profound spiritual realities and the, the satisfaction of the soul in God. And she's thinking about well and water. And that's our response to spiritual truth apart from the Holy Spirit. We're going to get some of this water so I don't have to keep coming to the well. What Jesus is actually speaking about, though, is the Holy Spirit. That reference to living waters is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. We can see this in a variety of ways, but one basic way we see in, in John's gospel is that Jesus uses the same metaphor in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39 to explicitly refer to the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. Uh, Jesus is saying, the gift that I have to give to you is God the Holy Spirit. Uh, all those who believe in me are given this gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit communicates the life-giving presence of God himself such that your soul's thirst for God is satisfied. Uh, eternal life in John is described not simply as forgiveness of sins or resurrection life. Eternal, the essence of eternal life is to know God and his Son. John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is saying through the Holy Spirit, your soul can be satisfied with the very presence of God. That deep inner thirst you have will be fulfilled if you come to me and receive the water that I have to give you. Now that reveals something really important about what it means to be a Christian. 
being a Christian is not simply a matter of having your sins forgiven, although it includes that, praise God. Being a Christian is not simply a matter of obeying King Jesus and doing what he says, although it includes that, of course, and praise God. But being a Christian also involves a deep spiritual satisfaction in God. It involves a delight in God himself that satisfies us at the deepest level of our being. To be a Christian is to be somebody who treasures and delights in God himself. Is that how you tend to think of the Christian life? As someone who has a heart for God and delights in fellowship and relationship with him. That's at the very heart of being a believer. You may have noticed that there are certain activities that we do, not because we enjoy the activity, but we enjoy the benefit that comes from the activity. So when you take out the garbage, for instance, typically you don't enjoy pulling out the trash. Uh, it's just the benefit that you're seeking, right? You don't want like, smelly garbage everywhere. Or perhaps you, you know, your job. Hopefully this is not the case, but maybe your job is terrible and you just, you're doing it for the paycheck, right? That kind of thing. Certain activities we do not because we enjoy the activity as such. There's a benefit that comes from it. But other activities we do because they're inherently enjoyable. Talking to an old friend till late at night, even if we lose some sleep over it, we do that cause, not because it puts money in our pocket or puts food on the plate. We do it because it's inherently enjoyable to talk to an old friend. Uh, we, we look at sunsets, not, not because there's any practical benefit, uh, but because it's inherently delightful to see the sun setting. And so also fellowship with God. We, we seek God not be, for some other benefit, but because it is inherently life-giving and joy-giving to be in his presence. Do, do you experience that kind of spiritual fulfillment in God? That's, what, that's part of what Jesus is offering to us today. So I give the Holy Spirit that that soul thirst could be satisfied. Um, you see this uh, throughout Scripture, by the way, the duty of delighting in God. Take, for instance, Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. D do you recognize that you have a moral obligation to be happy in God? We tend not to think about that, uh, but we have a responsibility to be joyful in God. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. If you know God, you'll have joy. Psalm 3211, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. When you have a relationship with God, the effect it has is to cause your heart to soar. Or as the shorter catechism famously puts it, what is the chief end of man? Who can answer that? I know some of you can answer that. Uh, what, what is the chief end of man? Uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What were we made for? To delight in God, to treasure him. And we are never more fully human than we are when we are doing that, communing with our God. So how do we have, how do we experience this enjoyment of God practically? Well, it's not a mystery. The Bible tells us. Uh, we experience fellowship, uh, we experience this life-renewing fellowship with God through a disciplined life of prayer. When we pray and come near into the presence of God through Jesus, we have fellowship with him, we encounter God. When we reflect on his word, think about it, pray it into our hearts, the Holy Spirit takes that truth about God, God is love, for instance, and he causes it to explode in our soul. He causes us not simply to be affected by that truth intellectually, but to delight with our whole heart in that reality. We experience God through reflection on his word. We experience God as we praise him individually and corporately with his people. 
We gather together not simply to go through the motions that we do every week to sing his praises, but to encounter the living God. We encounter God through the preaching of his word and through the administration of the sacraments and the Lord's Supper. When we take those elements, the bread and the juice and communion, it's not just about taking the elements. It's about through the elements having fellowship with God. It's at the very heart of our faith. One way you can tell that you're increasingly finding delight in God is adverse circumstances don't completely rob you of your joy. When things go badly for you, when you face challenges in life, you can still rejoice because your joy is fundamentally in God. Listen to what the prophet Habakkuk says, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's an amazing statement. Even when the stalls are barren and there isn't food on the table, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be happy in God. I may not have all the things that I want, but I have God, and that's enough. Does your heart say that? God is enough, regardless of what adverse circumstances I might face. Finally, one final implication of this uh, truth. If we want to grow spiritually, we need to prioritize growing in our delight in God. Part of the way we kill sin, of course, is by seeking grace to resist temptation and the desire for evil. But for us to resist the allure of sin, we have to grow in our delight in God. As God becomes more beautiful and lovely to us, the grip of sin will loosen. The, the, the pleasures that sin promised just won't be so great when we are fulfilled in God. Uh, John Piper in his book, The Legacy of Sovereign Joy, describes it this way. The battle to be holy is a battle fought at the level of what we love, what we cherish and treasure and delight in. The battle for holiness is a battle to be fought mainly by fueling the fires of our passion for Christ. As our delight in God grows, our attraction to evil diminishes. And then Piper quotes St. Augustine's Confessions to illustrate the point. Augustine, as some of you may know, struggled with sexual sin. Uh, he famously prayed some way, somewhere, Lord, you know, take this away, but not yet. Uh, There's a real struggle in his soul. And here's what Augustine says. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than pleasure. It was the sweetness of God that caused sin to taste bitter. We overcome sin in our lives by increasingly growing in our delight in God. Jesus offers this woman all of this. And she says, well, well, I'd like some of that water so I don't have to keep coming to the well. But she does ask for water. This is the crucial thing. And Jesus goes with her. This is the final thing to note. Um, the kind of worship that God seeks, true worship. So she says, can I have this water? She thinks she is asking for literal water. And Jesus wants to help her understand two things. The nature of the water that he's giving and why she needs that water. He's trying to help her in this section, help her see her thirst so she can appreciate the water that he's offering to her. 
And so he's going to put his finger on a very sensitive and painful spot. He is going to bring to light her morally messy past. But he is going to do this very gently, not to shame her and to cause her to wallow in guilt, but so that he can help her and wash her. So he says to her, okay, you want water? Call your husband, come, bring him over here too. And she says, I have no husband, which is technically true, but it's not the whole truth. But notice how gracious Jesus is, you know? He could have, no, that's not true. Right, you're lying. That's not, that's not what he says. He says, notice his gentleness in his response. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. You see our Lord's kindness in the way he deals with this woman. Yeah, I know you don't have a husband. You're living with a guy who's not your husband in sexual immorality. You've had a string of husbands who are, you know, those relationships are ended. Jesus is bringing up some very painful uh, things from this woman's past in order to do her good. And we need to understand, as God's people, if we are to understand the depth of God's love and grace, we have to see the, the, the mess in our lives, the truth about ourselves. But the point of helping people see their sin is not to make them feel bad and to crush them. It's so that they would, they would see their need for a savior and look at the amazing grace that God has given in his son, Jesus Christ. That's the point of convicting them, and that's what Jesus is doing. Look at your need for water. Look how thirsty you really are. Now, we can take the woman's response to Jesus' observation about her uh, past in one of two ways. Uh, she says, Lord, I see that you're a prophet. I can, I can tell God's speaking th through you. So let's discuss theology. Should we worship in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? It's possible she's doing what we all do when we're confronted with our sin, which is, let's talk about something else. I'd rather discuss doctrine and theology than the mess in my own life. It's possible she's doing that. It's also possible, though, she recognizes that he's a prophet, and there is this pressing issue about the right way to worship, this, this conflict between the Jews and Samaritans, and she might want further light. So she says, okay, what's the, what's the right place to worship? You Jews say it's Jerusalem. You know, we Samaritans think it's Mount Gerizim. Who's right? And Jesus' basic point is like, look, the time is coming, and actually it's now here, when the question of where is really irrelevant. It's not about Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. It's about having the Holy Spirit and worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Although D Jesus does say that salvation is from the Jews. So he does recognize that God has been revealing himself through the Jews and salvation is from the Jews, not from the Samaritans. The issue is not where, but how. Worship in spirit and truth. And we ought to worship this way, according to verse 24, because God is spirit. That expression is not entirely easy to interpret, it probably means something, it, verse 24 is probably contrasting God with man. We are, we are of the flesh, we are limited, we are created. But God is spirit, majestic, high, infinite, transcendent. Uh, you see something of this contrast, for instance, in Isaiah 31 verse 3. But the Egyptians are men and not God. Men, are, men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. So that statement, God is spirit, is probably pointing to his transcendence, to the way he's different from us. And it's precisely because of that transcendence that those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, the great question is, what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Uh, in my view, spirit refers not to the human spirit, but to the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, I say this partly because of what Jesus says in chapter 3, which is you can't even go into the kingdom of God, enter God's life-giving reign, without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to, has to cause you to be born again. So, by extension, you can't worship God without the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to worship God. Uh, in addition, Jesus says in John 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Uh, without the Holy Spirit, we're, we have a merely fleshly ordinary human existence. It's the Holy Spirit who imparts spiritual life and actually enables us to worship God. So I believe when uh, Jesus says that we, we are to worship God in spirit, he means we are to worship God uh, as those empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, worship basically involves two things. Seeing and responding. By faith, we see the truth about God. He's our Father in heaven. He loves us. He sent his Son. We see that truth by faith, and then we respond with adoration, thanksgiving, obedience, confession. And the Holy Spirit is the one that causes the truth about God to explode in our souls. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes that truth to come alive and go, yeah, God really loves me. That's true. He makes the truth about God alive, and then our response is one of praise and adoration and thanksgiving. Worship is a supernatural thing empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that's what Jesus is getting at. But notice, it's not just that worship is in spirit, it's in spirit and truth. And let me note first, a very subtle point, Jesus doesn't say that the Father calls us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Is that what it says? Calls us to worship him in spirit and truth. And the reason that's significant is the grammar there is indicating that spirit and truth always go together. You can't have one without the other. The two belong together. It's not like that church over there is worshiping in spirit, that church over there is worshiping in truth. Right? That, that dichotomy or division between spirit and truth is not possible. Where you have one, you have the other. They go together. So what does Jesus mean by truth? Well, above all, Jesus is referring to the fact that God's final and highest self-revelation is in Jesus. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying if we're going to worship God properly, we have to worship in response to and in harmony with God's revelation in Jesus. We are not worshiping properly if we don't see Jesus front and center and what God has done through him. Both elements are essential for, for the kind of worship that pleases God. And I think that challenges two very distinct groups of people in the church. Uh, on the one hand, you have the, you have the people who, have, who, who want light without heat, the, the knowledge people, those who emphasize truth. And of course we should emphasize truth because Scripture does and God wants us to. But sometimes those who are zealous for very precise and careful thinking about God uh, can be perhaps slightly suspicious about emotions and experience and vigorous expressions in worship. They're perhaps more stoic in how they express themselves before God. Now, let me just say there are cultural factors at play as well and certain temperamental differences. Certain people are just more expressive, others less so. We should you know, acknowledge that. Uh, at the same time, though, we need to, uh, G Jesus is saying that there's a supernatural element in worship. The Holy Spirit causes the truth of God to burn in our hearts, and worship should be vigorous and emotionally expressive. Worship should touch our affections. We should rejoice in God. There should be a palpable gladness and vigor in Christian worship. So that kind of half-hearted, anemic, uh, 
lopsidedly cerebral worship, you can describe it that way, it falls short of God's desire for us. So it challenges the, uh, the theologians, perhaps, among us. But it also challenges, Jesus' words also challenges the, the more emotionally expressive among us. And, and this would be the sort of person who has a powerful emotional experience and goes, man, that worship was great. Uh, that, that was deep. I was so stirred. I, I really worship God. In other words, what they're doing is they're identifying worship with strong emotional r- reactions. Now, certainly worship can include strong and should include strong emotional reactions, but strong feelings as such are not necessarily worship. They are worship if those strong feelings are a response to the truth. Like if you see God loves me and then your heart is filled with joy and gladness, that's worship. Because your emotions are responding to truth. But if you're just emoting by yourself, untethered from truth, that's not worship. You're just being you know, very stimulated emotionally, but that falls short of worship in spirit and in truth. And the challenge for that kind of individual, that kind of Christian, is to, to grow in our knowledge of God, to have clear, distinct, precise ideas about God and his son Jesus, and to grow in knowledge for the sake of worship. We tend to separate those two things, right? There's study over here and worship over here. No, you should study and grow in your knowledge of God for the sake of worshiping him more ardently. These are the kinds of people, Jesus tells us, that the Father is seeking to worship him. Those who worship in spirit and in truth. This is what God desires. And we need to recognize that worship is where we find the deepest satisfaction of our soul. We were made to know God and to worship him. And when we lift up our hearts to heaven and we adore the creator, we are being, in a profound sense, fully human, being what we were always meant to be. And it is in that act of worship that we find the fulfillment that we crave. Uh, Perhaps you're the sort of Christian who emphasizes doing and you're, you're busy for the Lord, praise God for that. But this passage strongly urges us to also value worshiping communing with God, delighting in him, and making that a central priority in life. May God help us all to do that more and more. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh God, we were made for you, and apart from you, our souls are restless, going from one thing to another, and never finding the delight that we crave. Thank you so much for Jesus who came into the world to reconcile us to you and to give us the Holy Spirit that we might have eternal life, life life-giving communion with you. Father, grant us all to prioritize not just doing, but communing more and more in our lives. Amen.